Good morning, everybody. For our scripture today, I don't think you need to turn to it. I'm going to read it, but you will be familiar with it. Probably one of the most familiar verses <clears throat> that we have in the scripture. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever and we can translate this literally whoever is believing in him should not perish but have eternal life for God so loved for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Now, not buried, it may be a word I would use, buried in that verse is an entire doctrine that is, has largely been erased from our teaching and preaching today. But I want you to notice that really the little word perish is the backdrop against which everything in Scripture regarding God's revelation of our lostness, of his love, of his offering for Jesus, of Jesus for us, his promise of everlasting life, his requirement of faith and obedience on our part. The concept, the doctrine, the teaching of the danger of perishing is back of all this. It's the foundation. We don't find it a pleasant subject, which is one of the reasons why um, we avoid it, minimize it, pick other words for it because we, unfortunately, God has said, he has diagnosed us all without Christ. We want our ears tickled. Paul said in the latter days, perilous times will come. And he said, people will gather to themselves teachers who will scratch their itching ears, who will tell them what they want to hear. But this doctrine that we can perish is the foundation of everything. 
how arrogant and desperately mistaken that we would erase that from our teaching, our preaching. Really, when we do that, when we eliminate the preaching of the doctrine that a soul can perish, we remove all basis for any earnestness, any urgency. We've cut the entire foundation out from under us. And then we wonder why we're in a post-Christian culture where no one fears judgment, no one worries about anything, we can do what we want. The word perish comes from a root word for destruction. And it's the same root word for one of the devil's names, Apollyon. Even the sound of that word is haunting. Apollyon. And it means the destroyer. So to perish is to cooperate with the destroyer in my own destruction. The word perish never, ever means to cease to exist. It's not what the word means at all. It is to live forever apart from God. That's what perish means. So God sacrificed His Son, Jesus, so that would, we would not perish in an eternal separation from God. That's why, that's why later we will, quote, do this in remembrance of me as we drink the cup and eat the bread because Jesus gave himself to save me from perishing. That is, the, that is the looming issue that brought Jesus here. Let me just, we're going to have communion later, so I need to keep this short. But first of all, the place where we will dwell if we perish is real. The place is real. There are people who believe that the doctrine of hell is a figment of our imaginations or it's, a, it's just symbolic. It's an allegory. No, it's a real place. Jesus, 11 times out of the 12 times that the word Gehenna appears in the New Testament. Twelve times that word appears, and eleven of them came from Jesus. And Gehenna was a term for a location. Way back 
in the apostasy of the kings of Judah, Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, far departing from God, began to sacrifice children to Molech, burning children in the valley of Hinnom. It was a deep ravine just right off the edge, really, of the Jerusalem wall. And this was a place where they burned, offered their children in fire to Molech. Later, a good king, Josiah, in order to put a stop to it, desecrated that place where they worshipped Molech, burned their children. And he scattered the bones of people and he, he polluted the place. And he turned it into the city dump. So the valley of Hinnom, son of Hinnom who owned the property originally, was turned into a city dump rather than a place of burning children. And over the centuries, of course, that continued. And it was a continually stench-filled valley that when the wind off the Mediterranean would blow right, that stench hung over the city of Jerusalem. Smoldering fire that never was put out and it, Jesus said, the worm never dies. It's a garbage heap. And that then became a perfect, in the mouth of Jesus himself, a perfect illustration of hell. A place of refuse. A place where the fire never goes out and the worm never dies. Jesus then used that term almost exclusively. It's a place of eternal fire, a place that Jesus said was prepared. Matthew 25, he said those, that famous passage where he said, I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was sick, you didn't visit me. I was in prison, you didn't come and aid me and help me. And they said, well, when did you, we never saw you in that condition. And he said, even when you didn't do it to the least of these, my brethren, I counted as you didn't do it unto me. And then he said to this, depart you accursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's a place. It is not then just an illustration, an allegory, a symbol. It's a literal, real place.
the place is real. Second, the people are real. The people are real. Jesus called them accursed. He said, you didn't do this, do that. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said to those who said, but Lord, Lord, we did all kinds of things for you, and they named them. And he said, I didn't approve of you. And then he said this, no one will enter into the kingdom of heaven but those who do the will of my Father who's in heaven. Those are people, only people, real living moral agents can do or not do the will of God. Real people are in this place. Another term Jesus used, he said, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. That's people. In, <clears throat> I will just read this in the 21st chapter of Revelation. Jesus said, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Those are real people. Real people in heaven. But, Jesus said, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Those are real people. You have to be a real person, a being, to lie, commit adultery, blaspheme. These are real people. Finally, we have the illustration that Jesus used, and I don't, some people say, well, it's just a parable. So, what does that make? It's still truth, though I don't believe it's a parable. Real people, Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus, who was a nobody, died, beggar, laid at the gate of the rich man, hoping to be fed with the scraps of the banquets that the rich man had. The dogs licked his sores, Jesus said. He died, and the angels took him to heaven, to Abraham's bosom, Jewish phrase for final peace, rest, security, home. And then Jesus said, and the rich man died and was buried. The implication here is very strong. Not only did they not have an obituary in the paper, and a funeral procession for Lazarus. He, I doubt he even was buried. You remember I told you about Gehenna a moment or two ago? That's where, that's where Lazarus's body probably went. He didn't even merit a funeral. 
He had no one except the angels. God sent the angels. You go get him. You bring him to me. He's one of mine. The rich man, it says, he was buried. You can bet the businesses were closed. The streets were decorated up a bit. They had some kind of procession. Big feast. They would hire. It's a very common practice. They hired professional mourners. They just bawled and howled and carried on. All this. The rich man died and was buried. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw afar off Lazarus in heaven. That's part of the torment that that rich man had was seeing this insignificant person that he paid no regard to enjoying heaven. He could see it. No record at all that Lazarus could see anything going on in hell. We're unaware of it in heaven. God wipes away all tears. It's gone. But those in hell can see. And their memory haunts them like the worm that dies not. Their conscience. Because the rich man had a very clear memory. He said, I've got five brothers at home. Would you please send someone to them that they might repent and not come to this place. And the Lord, in the sense of Abraham, answers him and says, they have the Bible, they have Moses, let them listen to that. I said, oh no, if someone will go to them from the dead, in other words, the scripture's not enough. If someone will go to them from the dead, they'll believe. God answers if they won't believe my words, they won't believe even if somebody came back from the dead, obviously referring to Jesus. The people are real. One other thought here from Matthew 25, where Jesus said, depart from me, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he turned and said to the righteous, enter into my kingdom, he said, which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Here's a thought we have to remember. There's two preparations here. He said, I've prepared this place for the righteous where you'll dwell, and it's been prepared from the foundation of the world, waiting for every single soul that loves and trusts and follows and serves God. Notice he said to the unbelievers, to the wicked, to those who were real human people who did not 
obey God, did not love their fellow man and their God. He said, you go to a place. He basically says this, you go to a place I never intended for you to go to. You go to a place that wasn't even prepared for you. It was prepared for the devil and his angels when they fell in heaven. So every human that finds themselves lost in hell is an intruder. Technically, they're a trespasser. They're where they don't belong. God never intended us to go there. But since the devil and his angels are eternal spirits, and so are we, if I insist on associating with and aligning myself with the devil and his angels, where else am I going to go? And technically, I think it's correct. I know Jesus said, depart from me, and that's a command. But all he's doing, he's not sending them to hell. He's finally giving them their belligerent, resistant choice. He has done everything he could possibly do, including hanging on a cross and dying, paying the penalty, and Jesus, we know. Jesus also experienced, for some moment, the same sense of a lost soul. Not We talk often about, and rightly so, about what Jesus suffered on the cross, his physical sufferings. Listen, they were nothing compared to when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He experienced briefly and had to, to be our Redeemer, what it meant to be separated from the Father. He tasted death, not just physical death, but that, in his case, a temporary separation from the Father, except in the case of the un, unrepentant human, that separation is forever. That's why it's called the second death. So God finally grants us our choice. And the longer, the longer I go and I, uh, see and experience and read of the mercy of God, the love of God, the fact, the fact that no one, no one can escape the voice of God. Psalm 50 from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof, he calleth the earth. That's the whole earth. That's everybody in it. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. David said, Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? 
how could I get away from you? If I take the wings of the morning and go to the uttermost islands of the sea, you're there. He's everywhere. So let me say this before we move on. It is infinitely, I can't measure it, it's infinitely harder, infinitely harder to finally land in hell than it is to make it to heaven. I've got God on my side to get to heaven. Yeah, the devil tempts us and an evil world beats on us, but Jesus said, I'll never leave you. Be of good cheer. Be of good courage. Don't be dismayed. Don't be afraid. I am with you wherever you go. Jesus said, Lo, I'm with you even unto the end of the age. I'll never leave you. Of the devil, he's not omnipresent like Jesus. Even the temptation of Jesus, it said the devil left him for a while. He can't be everywhere. Now he's got plenty of demons and plenty of ratty people that work on his payroll. But they're a whole lot easier to fight off than God. I've got to trample God underfoot in order to finally land in hell and perish. It's easier to make it to heaven. The people are real. Third, the punishment is real. One, of course, is eternal separation from God, which I don't have the language to describe that. But if we could possibly think of everything good, everything decent, everything kind, everything hopeful, everything, friendship. I, I've read and I've heard literally, many of us probably have too, that I don't mind going to hell. It's where all my friends are. Drink beer and play cards. There won't be any friendship in hell. Even the friendship between unbelievers is from God. All decency, all kindness, all little bit of human mercy, the milk of human kindness, all that comes from God. All of it. You take God out, you separate us from God, it is nothing, it is nothing but sheer, I can't describe it. It is hatred, it is viciousness, venom, that's all there's going to be. You're not going to be there with your friends because there won't be such a thing as friendship. The punishment is real. Not only did Jesus call it 
torment. Jesus said the smoke of their torment ascends forever. And we have the words from Jesus taken from the mouth of the rich man. He pleading with God said, I'm tormented in this flame. There's the torment of separation from God, which is indescribable. We can't grasp it because even in this fallen, desperately wicked world, we are awash in what we sang about in that last song, the grace of God. We don't know what it would be like. We can't imagine what it's like without the grace of God, the kindness of God. The punishment also is a physical suffering of some kind. And we have a body that can't die. We all will have, in heaven or in hell, a resurrected body no longer subject to disease, death, decay. We'll live forever in torment. The punishment then, the punishment's real. Finally, the peril is real. To reject, and, and let me just say this, to reject Jesus' offering, to reject salvation through Jesus, to reject His call and command, that I worship Him, follow Him, bow the knee to Him, obey Him, serve Him with all my heart. To reject that, I'll perish. That's the peril. And hear me, I know that we, it, it's so common that we turn away from this awful doctrine, but it's true, is that we think, well, the really, really bad people are in hell. And when we think of even the word reject, if we reject God's law, we reject Jesus suffering for me, we reject His call, that we must do that with a red face, gritted teeth, bulging vessels and blood vessels in our neck because we hate God. No. Just don't do what He tells you to do. Very sophisticatedly, maybe very calmly, very classy, I don't, I don't care for that. I know that I should do this, but I might later, but not now. You don't have to be a fiend to perish. But you know what? We'll become that. 
I did some research on the word Nash. G-N-A-S-H. Jesus. Jesus. There's only one. Jesus said. Mark 9. Three times in a row he said, there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. The word gnash literally means simply to grind or snap your teeth. It's not merely physical torment that will cause you to snap your teeth like a dog. This is literally what it means. But it's the hopelessness. It's the permanence. It is the intensity of what it'll be to be cut off from God forever. I worked with, prayed for a couple for some years who were very well-to-do, very cultured, very in the, all the right clubs in Portland. And finally they told me that they basically were not going to mind God. I was a wonderful human being and all this, but they just said, sometimes we feel that things are just a little bit too emotional. Now, I'm talking about preaching just like I am this morning. I told them of a quick story of 150 years ago in a revival meeting out in the woods where somebody, some big, gruff farm boy knelt by a just a rail that they put up for an altar and was sobbing because he was a sinner and asking God to forgive him. And Peter Cartwright, Methodist circuit rider, had preached. And he overheard a little, he said, spindly-legged, limp-wristed preacher from another denomination telling the guy, compose yourself, son, compose yourself. Peter Cartwright just went over to him, kind of pushed the preacher away, put his hand on the man's shoulder, and he says, there's no composure in hell, and that's where you're going to go if you don't repent. Jesus paints, he paints the most vivid picture he could possibly paint to humans. He's seen it, and he understands it. He has to put it into words that we can get a hold of. He did his best. The punishment is real. The peril is real. That's why Jesus said, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. If your hand offends you, meaning grasping for money and things and possessions, he said, cut it off. If your foot, where you tend to go, offends you, he said, Cut her off. And every, every, after each of those three illustrations, he said, it's 
better to be enter into the kingdom of heaven maimed with your foot off. You'll get a new one. Then he said to be cast into hell with your whole body. The peril's real. That's why we're told, flee sin. Lay hold on eternal life. I don't know, obviously, each of us here, but God does. He knows our hearts. And here's the wonderful thing, that the Lord willing, I want to look at next Sunday. There's a remedy. There's a way to avoid perishing. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever is believing, walking, obeying him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Even as we prepare and go through the ritual of communion today. There are moments, opportunities here for you, if you know you're not ready to meet God, and He's faithful, you, we can dodge and duck all we want, but you can't hide from God. There's no better time as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper in remembrance of what he did so that we won't perish. We can pray right here. God hears us. Heaven's open. The offer's out here. And he said, come unto me and I'll receive you as sons and daughters. No better day as we participate the Lord's Supper for us to settle things if we need to with the Lord. Let's just bow our heads <clears throat> briefly for prayer, and then we will <clears throat> go ahead and move into the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, apply the truth to us, I pray. You know, Lord, that the enemy will lie to us in our own hearts if we're not where we should be. We'll do our best to try to hide. And, but you know where we are. And we know that you know where we are. And the only reason, Lord, you ever confront us and bother us is because you don't want us to perish. You want us to have everlasting life. So, Lord, if there are hearts here today that need to settle things with you, May we just do it. In the name of Jesus. Amen. As we move through our ritual, just a reminder that we file to the front. And as Dan and Tanner will be here with the elements, <clears throat> go to your left and then come back. 